please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there's always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options, shop pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to Dorky listeners. Just enter the code Dorky, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Safe Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Safe Boutique has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past. And I'd like to share what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. October is over, and so is the spooktacular. However, the subject of today's episode, Mary I of England, was suggested to me as a topic for the spooktacular. And yes, Mary I is a great topic for the spooktacular, especially when you consider her nickname, Bloody Mary, and the spooky slumber party or Halloween party game that's said to invoke her ghost. However, I tend to be a bit looser when I do the spooktacular episodes, and I feel like Mary, the first woman to rule England as queen in her own right, deserves a deeper, more serious look at her life. So I decided to talk about her in a regular episode. But don't worry, I'm going to be talking about that slumber party slash Halloween game in a bit. So there's still going to be a little spookiness to this episode. So I thought that maybe we can consider this episode a sort of sunsetting of 2023's Spooktacular. You'll also notice that several of the people I'm going to mention are people that I've done previous episodes about. I won't apologize for that, but I will say that this wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened this way. I'll be posting links to episodes about those people in the show notes, 
But my goal is to tell Mary's story today, not to retread ground I've already covered. Another goal I have is to broaden the scope of this podcast beyond the tutors. However, Mary's story is a good one and deserves to be told. With all that being said, let's get started. She's known to history as Bloody Mary, but her real name was Mary Tudor. She was King Henry VIII's oldest child and the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. She would eventually become Queen Mary I, but it was a long, tough road for her to get there. And unfortunately, things didn't get much easier for her once she did become queen. Mary was born February 18, 1516. Like I said, her parents were King Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mary was their only surviving child. Henry and Catherine had struggled to have a child before having Mary. Mary was baptized into the Catholic faith three days after her birth. She was a precocious child. In July 1520, at four and a half years old, she entertained a visiting French delegation with a performance on a harpsichord. Catherine's parents, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, were very big on learning and made sure their daughter Catherine got a top-notch education. Catherine, in turn, made sure that her daughter Mary received a good education as well. Mary could read and write Latin by the time she was nine. She also studied French, Spanish, music, dance, and possibly Greek. It's no secret that Henry VIII was disappointed that Mary was a girl, as he wanted a son who was legitimate that could be his heir. But at this time in her life, Henry adored Mary and called Mary his, quote, pearl in the world. Henry even boasted to a Venetian ambassador that Mary never cried. By the time Mary was nine, it was evident that Henry and Catherine wouldn't have any more children. With no legitimate male heir, Henry sent Mary to the border of Wales to preside over the Council of Wales and Marches. Mary was also given her own court based at Ludlow Castle and many other royal prerogatives normally given to a Prince of Wales. Some called her the Princess of Wales, but she was never technically bestowed with that title. She spent about three years in the Welsh marches, regularly visiting her father's court. She permanently returned to London in mid-1528. During all this time, Henry was negotiating potential future marriages for Mary. When she was only two years old, Mary was promised to Francois, Dauphine of France, the infant son of King Francois I but the contract was ended after three years. So, in 1522, when she was six years old, Mary was contracted to marry 22-year-old Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. However, Charles broke off this engagement within a few years. Henry's chief advisor, Cardinal Wolsey, 
then started marriage negotiations with the French again. Henry suggested that Mary get married to the French king Francois I, who was eager for an alliance with England. A marriage treaty was signed which stated that Mary would either marry Francois I or his second son, Henri, Duke of Orleans. However, Wolsey was able to secure the alliance with France without a marriage, so that marriage treaty also fell through. So, by the time she was 12, Mary had already been engaged several times. In 1528, the idea of her marrying James V of Scotland was discussed. However, in reality, none of these potential marriages mattered, because by this point, the marriage of Mary's parents was in trouble. Upset at not having a male heir, Henry was trying to get his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. This turmoil threatened Mary's status as a princess but I also imagine made for a very unhappy household. To complicate matters, Henry would fall in love with one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. Henry became convinced that if he could get the annulment from Catherine that he wanted, that he could then marry Anne Boleyn, and that they would have the son he wanted so badly. From 1531 on, Mary is said to have had poor health. She is said to have often been sick with irregular menstruation and depression. My sources say that it's unclear if this was caused by stress or an actual disease. I don't like to speculate about historical figures, physical or mental health, so I won't be doing that. But I am mentioning this because I think it's important to Mary's story throughout her life and up to her death. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. So Henry sent Catherine to live away from court so that he could be with Anne Boleyn, and Mary wasn't allowed to see her mother, which broke both Catherine and Mary's hearts since they were so close. Then, in early 1533, Henry married his second wife, Anne Boleyn. That May, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, formally declared the marriage between Henry and Catherine void and the marriage to Anne valid. Henry rejected the Pope and declared himself supreme head of the Church of England. Catherine's title was demoted from Queen to Dowager Princess of Wales, which was technically the title she would have held as she was the widow of Henry's brother, Arthur. The change of Catherine's status affected Mary's status as well. Mary was deemed illegitimate. She was no longer titled princess. Instead, she was to be called the Lady Mary. Her place in the line of succession was moved behind Henry's newborn daughter with Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth. Mary's household was dissolved and her servants were dismissed. In December 1533, Mary was sent to join the household of her infant half-sister Elizabeth, where she was one of Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. Throughout all of this, Mary stubbornly refused to acknowledge that Anne Boleyn was the queen, or that Elizabeth was a princess. I say, good for Mary for sticking to her guns. But 
In reality, this wasn't a good look for Mary, as all it did was make Henry angry. With all of this stress, and her movements restricted, Mary was frequently ill. The royal physician attributed this to, quote, ill treatment. Mary and the Spanish ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, became very close. He would try to speak up for Mary at court, but this was unsuccessful. Side note, Chapuis was an absolute ally of Catherine of Aragon and her daughter Mary, and would write the most wonderfully gossipy letters back to Spain about the goings-on at the English court. He would definitely be that friend that you spend hours on the phone with gossiping. I'm not making the claim that Chapuis had an actual burn book, but I am saying that I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that he did. Throughout all of this, the relationship between Mary and her father worsened. They didn't speak to each other for three years. Mary was ill, and so was her mother, Catherine. But Henry still refused to allow the two to see each other. Catherine of Aragon died in 1536. Mary was inconsolable over this loss. Later that same year, to make a long story short, Anne Boleyn fell from Henry's favor and was beheaded. Her daughter Elizabeth immediately received the same treatment Mary did. She was declared illegitimate and stripped of her succession rights. Elizabeth was only two years old when all this happened, but Mary would have been 20. I can't speak for Mary or put myself in her mind, but I imagine that having gone through this exact thing herself would create a soft spot for Elizabeth and Mary. The two would maintain, for better or worse, a special relationship for the rest of their lives. Within two weeks of Anne Boleyn's execution, Henry married his third wife, Jane Seymour. Jane urged Henry to make peace with Mary, but Henry refused to do so unless Mary recognized him as head of the Church of England denounced papal authority, and acknowledged that the marriage between her parents had been unlawful, accepting her own illegitimacy. To Mary's credit, she tried. She agreed to submit to Henry's authority as far as, quote, God and my conscience permitted. But that answer wasn't good enough for Henry. Mary eventually ended up signing a document that agreed to all of Henry's demands. Having made up with her father, Mary resumed her place at court. Henry granted her a household. Mary was also given an allowance that allowed for things like clothes and even gambling at cards, which was one of Mary's favorite pastimes. This is when the rebellion known as the Pilgrimage of Grace happened. Simply put, this rebellion was against Henry's religious reforms and pro-Catholicism. The Pilgrimage of Grace was suppressed, and though people were executed for being part of this rebellion, Mary, although still Catholic, wasn't found to be directly involved in the rebellion, so was spared. In 1537, 
Henry's third wife, Jane, died after giving birth to a son, Edward. Mary was made godmother to her half-brother and acted as chief mourner at Jane's funeral. In late 1539, Mary was courted by Philip, Duke of Bavaria. However, Philip was Lutheran, so his attempt to woo Mary was unsuccessful. During this time, Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, was negotiating a potential alliance between England and the Duchy of Cleves. It was suggested that Mary get married to William I, Duke of Cleves, but that didn't come to anything. But Henry did marry the Duke's sister, Anne of Cleves. Henry wasn't happy with this match and tried to cancel the marriage before it happened, but that wasn't possible. Cromwell fell out of favor during all of this and was arrested for treason in June 1540. One of the charges brought up against him was that he had plotted to marry Mary herself. Anne of Cleves would end up consenting to an annulment of her marriage to Henry and would be just fine. But Cromwell would be beheaded. In 1542, after a long, sad story, Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, was executed, and Henry invited Mary to attend the royal Christmas festivities at court. Henry wasn't married at this time, and Mary acted as hostess. In 1543, Henry married his sixth and last wife, Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr would be instrumental in bringing something close to a real formal reconciliation between Henry and his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. Henry returned both of his daughters to the line of succession, placing them after Edward because, you know, patriarchy. However, because Henry VIII was, well, Henry VIII, both of his daughters would remain legally illegitimate. Henry VIII died in 1547 and was succeeded by his son with Jane Seymour, Edward. Since Edward was still a child at this point, a regency council was set up to rule until he came of age. This Regency Council was mostly made up of Protestants, and this faith began to be established throughout the country. However, Mary remained Catholic and defiantly held traditional Mass in her own chapel, asking her cousin, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, to apply diplomatic pressure that she be allowed to practice her religion. For most of Edward's time as king, Mary remained on her own estates and rarely attended court. Religious differences between the very Catholic Mary and the very Protestant Edward continued. Mary did see Edward and Elizabeth for Christmas in 1550. Edward, who was 13 at the time, embarrassed Mary, who was 34, by publicly scolding her for ignoring his laws regarding worship. Mary repeatedly refused Edward's demands that she abandon Catholicism and Edward just as persistently refused to drop his demands. On July 6, 1553, at the age of 15, Edward VI died of what was most likely tuberculosis. As he got more sick, Edward realized that Mary would be next in line to the throne. 
The very stubborn Protestant Edward didn't want the very stubborn Catholic Mary to get the crown, as he feared she would restore Catholicism and undo all of his and their father's religious reforms. So he planned to exclude her from the line of succession. He was advised that he couldn't disinherit only one of his half-sisters, that he would have to disinherit his other half-sister. The very stubborn, technically Protestant, but not very Protestant, Elizabeth as well. Mary was in East Anglia when her half-brother Edward died. Following Edward's wishes, Protestant Lady Jane Grey was then proclaimed queen. Mary wasn't having any of this. Being denied the throne that should have been hers after everything she'd been through her whole life was not going to fly. I imagine her just like... over this. Within just a few days, Mary and her supporters had gathered a military force, and Jane was deposed. Mary rode triumphantly into London on a wave of popular support, accompanied by her half-sister Elizabeth and a procession of over 800 nobles and gentlemen. Lady Jane Grey, her husband, Guilford Dudley, and her father-in-law, who had masterminded this coup, were thrown into the Tower of London. One of Mary's first acts as queen was to order the release of several prominent Catholics from imprisonment in the Tower of London. To Mary's credit, she realized that Lady Jane Grey, who was only 16 years old, and her equally young husband Guilford were essentially just pawns in a scheme thought up by Guilford's father and didn't execute them for the attempted coup. They were found guilty and kept imprisoned, but not executed. Guilford's father, though, he was executed. Almost all of the members of the Privy Council had been part of the plot to put Lady Jane on the throne. But Guilford's father was the only member executed. A trial was held, and Lady Jane and her husband were both found guilty of treason. Being found guilty of this crime would usually lead to a death sentence, but Mary commuted Jane and Guilford's sentences. But, spoiler alert, this won't be the end of that. Mary was 37 by this point and, due to the way life had turned out for her, was still unmarried. She quickly turned her attention to finding a husband and producing an heir, which would prevent the Protestant Elizabeth from succeeding to the throne. Mary decided to get married to the Prince of Spain, Philip. The idea of this marriage was unpopular with the English. Some just because they opposed an alliance with Spain. But another reason was that the Protestants of the country weren't happy about Philip's Catholicism. Mary insisted on getting married to Philip, and insurrections broke out in England. Thomas Wyatt the Younger led a force to depose Mary in favor of Elizabeth as part of a wider conspiracy now known as Wyatt's Rebellion. 
This rebellion also involved, surprise, Lady Jane's father. When he reached London, he was defeated, captured, and then executed. Lady Jane and her husband Guilford were executed at this time as well, as they were deemed to be too big of a threat to Mary's crown. Elizabeth was also implicated in this plot and was imprisoned in the Tower of London for two months while they investigated, then put under house arrest at Woodstock Palace. So, a big part of the chaos surrounding Mary becoming queen, and all the drama surrounding her getting married, was the fact that she was, well, a woman. Yes, there was the brief reign of Empress Matilda during the period known as the Anarchy, a story for another time, friends. And there was also the Nine Days of Lady Jane Grey. But Mary is considered England's first queen regnant, and nobody exactly knew how to handle that. For example, under the English common law doctrine of jure exoris, which means the property and titles belonging to a woman became her husband's upon marriage, it was feared that any man Mary got married to would thereby become king of England, not just in name, but in fact. There was no precedent of this to follow in England. Under the terms of Queen Mary's Marriage Act, Philip was to be styled King of England. All official documents, including Acts of Parliament, were to be dated with both their names, and Parliament was to be called under the joint authority of the couple for Mary's lifetime only. England would not have to provide military support to Philip's father in any war, and Philip could not act without his wife's consent or appoint foreigners to office in England. Philip was unhappy with these conditions, but agreed to them for the sake of securing the marriage. I'm only being honest when I say that Philip had no romantic love for Mary. This marriage was, as far as he was concerned, like many royal marriages of that time, for political and strategical gain only. One of Philip's aides would make this perfectly clear in a letter he wrote to a friend. The marriage was concluded for no fleshly consideration, but in order to remedy the disorders of this kingdom and to preserve the Low Countries. A future child of Mary and Philip would not only be an heir to the throne of England, but also a possible heir to the Spanish Empire. Mary and Philip's wedding took place just two days after their first meeting. Philip could not speak English, and so they spoke a mixture of Spanish, French, and Latin. Now, I'm also only being honest when I say that I'm not sure Mary understood the transactional nature of this marriage. It appears she legitimately thought her marriage to Philip to be a love match. In September 1554, Mary started showing all of the signs of pregnancy, including weight gain and morning sickness. Everyone, including her doctors, believed she was pregnant. Parliament even passed an act making Philip regent should Mary happen to die in childbirth. 
In the last week of April 1555, Elizabeth was released from house arrest and called the court as a witness to the birth, which was expected at any moment. Thanksgiving services in London were held at the end of April after false rumors that Mary had given birth to a son spread across Europe. Through May and June, the apparent delay in delivery fed gossip that Mary was not pregnant. Mary continued to show signs of pregnancy until July 1555, when her swollen abdomen went down. The cause of this phantom pregnancy, as it would come to be known, is unclear. However, Mary considered this, quote, God's punishment for her having tolerated heretics in her realm. Philip left England to command his armies against France in Flanders. Mary was heartbroken at his departure and fell into a deep depression. The month after becoming queen, Mary had issued a proclamation that she would not compel any of her subjects to follow her Catholic religion. However, by the end of September 1553, leading Protestant churchmen were imprisoned. Mary's first parliament, which assembled in early October, declared her parents' marriage valid and abolished Edward's religious laws. Church doctrine was also restored to the form it had been before Henry VIII changed everything. Reaching an agreement took many months. By the end of 1554, Mary and the Pope finally came to an agreement. The monastery lands that had been confiscated by Henry VIII were not to be returned to the church, but remain in the hands of their influential new owners. Side note. I mean, is anyone surprised by that? Around 800 rich Protestants fled into exile. Those who stayed in England and publicly proclaimed their Protestant beliefs became targets of heresy laws. The first executions occurred in February 1555. The imprisoned Archbishop of Canterbury was forced to watch bishops being burned at the stake. He recanted, denounced Protestant theology, and rejoined the Catholic faith. Under the normal process of the law at that time, since he was repentant, he should have been absolved. But Mary refused to forgive him. On the day of his burning, he dramatically became a Protestant again. In total, 283 Protestants were executed, most by burning. These burnings were so unpopular that even one of Philip's own ecclesiastical staff condemned them. Another advisor warned Philip that, quote, such cruel enforcement could cause a revolt. But Mary continued with this policy, which continued until her death. This only made the anti-Catholic and anti-Spanish feeling among the English people worse, and also caused the executed to be viewed as martyrs. In January 1556, Mary's father-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor, abdicated. Mary and Philip were still apart. Philip was declared King of Spain in Brussels, but Mary stayed in England. 
Philip negotiated an unsteady truce with the French in February 1556. The next month, the French ambassador in England was implicated in a plot against Mary known as the Dudley Conspiracy, so that truce didn't go very well. Philip returned to England from March to July 1559 to try to convince Mary to support Spain in shocker of renewed war against France. Mary was for this, but was advised against it as it would jeopardize trade. War was only declared in June 1557 after the French tried to depose Mary. Then, in January 1558, French forces took Calais, which was England's only remaining possession on the European mainland. This territory was really a financial burden, but its loss was embarrassing to Mary. According to Hollinshed's Chronicles, Mary later lamented, When I am dead and opened, you shall find Calais laying in my heart. After Philip's visit in 1557, Mary again thought she was pregnant. She stated in her will that Philip would be the regent during the minority of their child. But again, no child was born, and Mary was forced to accept that her half-sister Elizabeth would be her lawful successor. Mary was weak and ill starting May 1558. She died on November 17th that same year. She was 42. It's unclear exactly what happened, but uterine cancer is suspected. She'd had problems in this area for years, and then the two, quote, phantom pregnancies. I'm not trying to make a diagnosis here. All I'm saying is that this seems to point to a continuous issue with that part of her body. Mary was succeeded by Elizabeth. Philip, who was in Brussels when Mary died, wrote to his sister Joan, I felt a reasonable regret for her death. Side note. He also then almost immediately tried to get Elizabeth to marry him, so... Although Mary's will stated that she wished to be buried next to her mother, this didn't happen. Instead, Mary was interred in Westminster Abbey in a tomb she eventually shared with Elizabeth. The inscription on their tomb, put there by James I when he succeeded Elizabeth, translates to Consorts in Realm and Tomb We sisters, Elizabeth and Mary, here lie down to sleep in hope of the resurrection. I find it sad that Mary's final wishes weren't followed, but I also find it strangely fitting that she would be buried with Elizabeth, considering their history. And that is the long, sordid story of Mary I. In a strange sort of way, I kind of feel like many of the topics I've covered on this podcast already have all led to this. Like, it's come full circle. Mary's reign was followed by her half-sister Elizabeth's reign. 
Elizabeth I is known as one of England's greatest monarchs, and definitely as one of England's greatest queens. Mary just isn't. I believe a large part of this is due to the fact that Mary was England's first real queen. Again, for the sake of argument, I'm leaving Empress Matilda and Lady Jane Grey out of this. So, by the time Elizabeth became queen, the idea of a woman being ruler wasn't such a strange concept anymore. Elizabeth also had the benefit of time. She was queen for 45 years while Mary was only queen for five years. Mary's legacy is that of Bloody Mary. She's known to have killed almost 300 Protestants. I'm not in any way excusing that, but Mary's dad, Henry VIII, is known to have had 57,000 people executed. Mary's half-sister Elizabeth, known to history as Good Queen Bess, was indeed a good queen, and her legacy absolutely shines in comparison to Mary's. The Tudors are a popular subject for documentaries, shows, even movies, and I feel like Mary is often treated as a sort of side note in these. I watched the show Becoming Elizabeth on Stars, and I was pleasantly surprised at how Mary was portrayed by actress Romola Barai. As you can probably tell by the title, the show is focused on Elizabeth. But Mary is like an actual fully developed person in that show. The show Becoming Elizabeth isn't perfect, but I recommend it just for that as well as for the boy king, Edward. Speaking of legacy, Bloody Mary's legend is so strong that there's even a spooky game named after her that's played at slumber parties and Halloween parties. I found the rules online, and I'm going to read them now. Bloody Mary is a classic scary game where players try to summon the ghost of Bloody Mary in the bathroom mirror. All you need to call Bloody Mary is a lit candle and a bathroom you can go into by yourself. To get the most out of the game, invite your friends over so you can play together and tell each other what you see in the mirror. Don't forget to turn off all the lights. Decide who's going to call Bloody Mary first. If no one volunteers, play a quick game to decide who it will be. Flip a coin or play rock, paper, scissors. Whoever loses goes into the bathroom first. Go into the bathroom when it's your turn and turn off the lights. Close the door behind you so it's completely dark. Make sure no one followed you in. You have to be alone when you call Bloody Mary. Place a candle on the sink in front of the mirror and light it. Look into the mirror and say Bloody Mary three times. Keep your eyes open when you're saying it. Make sure you speak slowly and clearly so Bloody Mary can hear you. Then wait for her to appear in the mirror. Spin around in a circle three times if Bloody Mary doesn't appear. Spinning might make her show up. After you spin around three times, Stop and look in the mirror to see if she's appeared. 
If she's still not there, try spinning in the other direction. Here are some of the sources I used for today's episode. Britannica, HistoricUK.com, SmithsonianMag.com, and Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at yourkeypod at gmail. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong, or let me know if there's something in particular in history that you'd like me to talk about. There's a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast, and all the other social medias are at DorkyPod. Join them and be part of our growing community, but also to get extra tidbits about episode topics like facts and pictures. There's also a link to donate to the podcast on the website and in the show notes if you'd like. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow, but more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. Thanks. <laughs>